0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries Group, global leaders in aerospace, developing
1: Japan's first homegrown commercial jet and the country's next generation launch vehicle. On
2: October 7th, the Washington Post Live traveled to New York City to learn how advances in technology, efficiency, and design are reshaping the future of aviation in the air and on the ground. New aviation markets are rapidly emerging around the world. In Asia, Japanese and Chinese companies are stepping into regional aviation as business there is expecting explosive growth in the coming years. In this segment, we'll talk to the former FAA administrator and a top aviation analyst about this new dynamic. Let's listen.
0: Good morning, I'm Libby Casey, the politics and accountability anchor at the Washington Post. We're going to continue our program this morning with Michael Huerta, who was the FAA administrator from 2013 to 2018, and Michael Boyd, longtime aviation analyst and CEO of Boyd International. Welcome, gentlemen, thank you for being here. And I invite our audience, both in the room as well as online, to send us your questions on Twitter. You can tweet us using the hashtag #PostLive. So so to begin with, let's talk about Growth, and, and we left on that note, as we heard uh, the CEO mention a moment ago, where he anticipates growth happening. But I want to talk about the Asia market. I mean, we're expecting to see uh, what could be 40% of the world's travel market in 15 years from now. What does that mean in terms of opportunity, Administrator Huerta?
2: Well, Asia is growing at faster than any other region of the world. You know, between now and 2037, I think IATA is estimating that the annual growth rate for aviation in Asia, will be uh, close to five percent, around 4.8 percent annually. And by comparison, that's double the U.S. rate projected for the same period. And so, a- and and I think uh, more importantly, China is expected to surpass uh, the U.S. as the world's largest aviation market just in the next few years. Mm-hmm. And India is not far behind. And so. Yes, there is a tremendous amount of growth taking place in Asia. That's demand for air services, demand for aircraft. And it raises a whole host of questions about how we <coughs> as an industry are going to accommodate that.
0: And it and, and also raises questions about everything from, from safety to regulation. But I want to look at this question of opportunity and, and where we go there. I, I, the International Air Transportation Association predicts the number of passengers could double mm-hmm. worldwide by 2037. We're looking at more than eight billion passengers. Mike, wh- what does that look like in terms of just capacity?
1: Well, uh, like for example, in China, we just did a forecast of the top 200 airports. China is gonna surpass the US, we think by October of 2021. Our growth, their growth, huge. I mean, there's, there's an airport there called Chung that opened up, it just opened up in 2011. They have a quarter million passengers today. That's in a region with only about 130,000 people. The growth there is just going to be astronomical because it's so there's no hubs in China, by the way. I mean, y- you can't really do much connecting. It's all point-to-point point stuff for now. And that's going to change. But that means we're going to have a whole lot more airplanes in the sky. They're going to need another 5,500 airplanes in the next 10 years. So that's huge. And that's just one country. <laughs> Here in the US, uh, uh, it's not well known, but we're still about 5% fewer airplanes in the sky now than 2007. They're bigger airplanes, but it dropped. You know, in two thousand eight, things dropped. We're getting back to that now. But what concurrent with that, we've got China growing. We've got India, if they ever build enough airports, growing. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. The EU intra-regional. You, you can't forecast airplanes anymore by region because the aer- they, they move around. You have to pre- forecast it by who's buying them. But we're going to have huge growth, and here in the U.S., it's still going to be growth that we have to accommodate.
0: Hey, where's the room for innovation as we see this potential boom? Know, is there an opportunity here to, to capitalize on the demand and make some real upgrades in the technology?
2: Well, the, what, what all the air aircraft manufacturers have been focused on is improving fuel efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, in addition to significant uh, impacts associated with aviation emissions, it's also a significant cost to airlines. And so the ability to make air transport available to folks uh, depends on bringing down costs, as we heard from Robin Hayes. A uh, short while ago, fuel is a big, big part of that, and new technologies are certainly c- doing their share to contribute to that. There's also uh, the use of composite materials that make for lighter and stronger airframes, uh, which also, you know, greatly increase the efficiency of uh, of uh, aircraft moving through the sky. And then innovations in how we move aircraft through the system, uh, much more efficient flight paths, and so. There is a lot uh, of work that is being done globally to try to accommodate this significant increase in demand. Looking really long term, uh, what about new propulsion systems? Things like electric aircraft, and uh, you know, and other technologies that will continue to innovate. You know, aviation has always been based on innovation and collaboration across the technology sectors and the transportation sectors. And I think that uh, where we are uh, today is really no different than that. What is different is that the pace of change is much quicker than it used to be.
0: Electric is such an interesting question. We did see at the Paris Air Show this summer an Israeli company come out with Mm -hmm. a prototype, ALICE, uh, for Mm -hmm. the electric plane, this is aviation. Uh, The goal is 650 miles it could travel at 240 knots. Uh, w- their goal is to get this out in the next couple of years, but what are we talking about in terms of practicalities of electric planes?
1: Well, right now, battery technology is not there. We're not going to see a, a large airliner, you know, powered and the extension cord would be way too long. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we just don't have that tech. But in Denver, there's a company called Bi Aerospace, mm-hmm. and they're putting out a two- and four-passenger airplane. Now, what that's all about is it's it's electric but the cost of the electricity for an hour is about $3. dollars you get into a Cessna 172, the cost of the fuel is about 40 to 50. Now what does that mean? That I- we're not talking about orthodontists buying this to go kill themselves on a weekend. We're talking about training. Mm. For people who wanna train, that's probably about $7,000 less just to get up to a, a dual rating in that airplane. So it's gonna affect pilot training too. That's a good thing. But if we're looking for purely electric, Rolls-Royce is working on it, other mm-hmm. people are, but it's it's a long way down the road. Hybrid, we've looked at hybrid, that's a possibility as well. So it's moving in the right direction, and all this talk about the, the battery technology, it, there'll be a breakthrough in a couple of years.
0: So we're talking tax, taxi service, small small planes. I mean, how would the, how could this impact the regional? Transportation system.
2: Well, well, there's two dimensions mm-hmm. to it. Um, I think nearer term, we are likely to see the short haul trips uh, being done by electric aircraft, to say to go from Manhattan to the airports. And uh, there's been, you know, a lot of discussion about how this could alleviate traffic uh, on the highways, and it would make for a much more predictable trip. A lot of work needs to be done, and I think the questions are less technological. Mm-hmm. And more regulatory and consumer acceptance. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, when you're dealing with um, you know a whole new aircraft type, the public depends on a number of things. The public has very high expectations for things that fly. Uh, we we want to know that the aircraft is safe. We want to know that the company that operates it meets some basic standard of safety. We want to know that the operator is properly qualified to ensure that the trip can be done safely. All of those are regulatory questions. And uh, those all need to be sorted out to enable this kind of service. And then longer term, we're talking about unmanned Uh, unpiloted aircraft uh, providing these sorts of services. And so you have a bucket of regulatory questions that need to be dealt with. Then you have the whole question of acceptance by the public. Uh, How comfortable are you going to be getting into a relatively small, electrically powered vertical takeoff aircraft uh, that may or may not have a pilot on board to head to some destination? And so there's gotta be data that's developed on how these aircraft operate. And then the, the business case for these is generally dense urban environments. And people in dense urban environments are very, very interested in what is happening around them. And when they start to see these things moving around through the system, uh, a, a friend of mine was the mayor of a major city, and put it this way, you know, if I have a constituent who is concerned about low-flying uh, quadcopter or whatever aircraft flying around in the city, they're not going to call the FAA. They're going to call the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> and and what he was asking is, what authorities do we have as a city? Which then brings up another whole set of issues, and that's the roles of federal, state, and local governments. So a lot of questions need to be resolved there.
0: Mike, I'd like you to weigh in on some of the points that Administrator Huerta brought up. Uh, what sticks out to you in terms of what could slow growth opportunities like that, and, and what could actually I- inspire things well, like the, you know, the electric plane?
1: Well, you know, the real problem we have, is, is Administrator will tell you, is, is managing this. Yeah. C- making things that they don't run into each other. You know, that's another thing. The other issue is, let's just say it's unmanned. It's going to be manned by somebody who's going to do that. How are they going to be trained? That sort of thing has to be worked through. And it's going to be at this level, uh, the administrator's level, well, that has to come. That's a lot of work. So that's one of the things. Another thing that's going to be taking place, it, it, it related to this, are drones, UAS. Yeah. And I'm not talking about the things realtors use to take pictures of their listings. I'm talking about, um, again, in China, they're taking old AN2 biplanes and making them drones you know, and it th- it'll land on 300 feet or something. That That's going to change our entire logistics system as well. Yeah. Places like Worland, Wyoming could yeah. become a major d- logistics center. Uh, 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 theoretically, over-road trucking could be replaced with this, and that has to be controlled too. Mm-hmm. And that means controlling the skies. Even over Wyoming, you're going to have to control the skies and mm-hmm. monitor it. So. Uh I don't want a job with the FAA going forward. put it that way. Okay. <laughs> well, there's you know, I think we
2: had we did hit an important milestone just in the last few days when um, UPS received what's called a part one thirty five operating certificate uh, to provide unmanned package delivery services. And it'll start out relatively limited uh, to provide uh, supplies to hospitals and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I think that y- the fact that the big logistics companies are viewing this, not as a whole new business, but an integral part of how they make their business more efficient, I think is really an important point and you're going to see more and more of that. Mike is quite right though because um, you know we have an air traffic control system that was designed to connect defined points with one another, mm-hmm. and when we start to think about drones and you start to think of in you start to envision a future where effectively everyone's driveway can become an airport and you're operating at lower altitudes, uh, talking to air traffic controllers is probably not the most efficient way to do that. There is a need for much more automation and uh, much more standards development in terms of ensuring the technologies are there to ensure that the system can operate safely.
0: Are other countries asking these same questions on the scale that, that, that you're asking them?
2: Yes and no. Um, I think it, the drone industry is, deve- is, is truly a global industry, and there are a couple of different philosophies that characterize it. Um, you know, in, in in some countries there is very much a push toward what I would call segmentation: set aside defined airspace that drones can operate in and let the traditional aircraft operate in different airspace to ensure that there's no conflicts with one another. That enables you to have distinct systems to operate uh, each of those and in in some respects it's easier. The U.S. has adopted a strategy of integration, uh, which is that drones and traditional aircraft need to coexist in the same sky. And it's been adopted out of necessity. Uh, Where we see a lot of demand for drone transportation (coughs) is the same place that airplanes of a traditional nature want to fly. The other thing is the United States has a very large and well-developed general aviation industry. And uh, these are the private pilots, the business aviation uh, that takes place throughout the system. And a lot of that takes place in what is currently uncontrolled airspace. And so if you're going to have a lot more unmanned aircraft operating, there need to be technologies to uh, enable those, that those systems can coexist and operate safely. And I'll just share with you uh, one statistic that I think illustrates where this is all going. We have on the aircraft registry of the United States about 300,000 aircraft. Of those, some 7,500 are classified as commercial aircraft. That registry has been built up over the 100 years of aviation history here in the United States. We have had an unmanned aircraft registry since 2015. We have today on the unmanned aircraft registry about 1.3 million unmanned aircraft (coughs) on the registry. And so just in less than four years and we also, um, of those, some 13,000 nearly double commercial aircraft are classified as commercial unmanned aircraft. And so this is growing at a very dramatic rate, and uh, so I think it's gonna fundamentally reshape aviation as we know it.
0: I-, I wanna talk about China again, because it's a place that you've both brought up, and ask you about Who's controlling the airspace there? And, and, and why does that matter if you're an entrepreneur looking to try to get into the market?
1: Oh, China's tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't. Yeah, we'll start <laughs> with that. Um, no, it's controlled by the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. And uh, it, it, I, think, I think you can tag into that with what, what you've been through these negotiations.
2: Well, it's, uh, China it, it has, um, it's a very large country. But yes, the Chinese Air Force uh, does control the majority of the airspace, which is the flip of what you have here in the United States. Here in the US, <laughs> the vast majority of the airspace is controlled by the FAA for civilian purposes. In the Chinese model, what that means is there are very narrow corridors that commercial aircraft need to operate within, and that represents a constraint uh, for the growth of air services uh, in China. Now. You know the, that market forecast that I gave you a little bit earlier has an important qualifier around it. Uh, the qualifier is that that it is a relatively unconstrained regulatory <laughs> climate uh, to see those levels of growth. And if China is going to be able to accommodate the growth that the market would dictate, they have that they're going to have. They're going to need to deal with this question of managing the airspace, and that means that the government is going to need to find ways to accommodate more civilian traffic. And so that, that that's a tension that exists between industry, uh, the, the private sector, if you will, and uh, larger government interests.
0: Are the rules outdated when it comes to uh, accepted law, accepted rules of having a carrier in a foreign country that uh, carries the flag of let's say a US carrier going into China and doing puddle jumpers, doing place to place.
1: That's not going to happen. I mean. Why I mean, not? Well, you hear the stuff about why don't we let foreign carriers fly in the United mm-hmm. States, then mm-hmm. we'll get more service in Lansing and Chicago. Mm-hmm. You think anybody's going to fly Lansing from Chicago, a foreign airline? Not in the right mind. <laughs> the, the point is
0: <laughs> we have It may depend th- on the cost. And, and, and legroom and everything well, else. Br- I mean, you know, if well, you think about what the consumer is looking at versus well,
1: what you looking at. let's talk about consumer. The consumer has changed. Every communication channel has changed. You know, 40 years ago, if you had an IBM correcting Selectric, you were at the top of the technology poll. Today, not only are they <laughs> gone, but the stuff they were putting out is gone. I don't have to type out a memo now to the accounting department to get last month's numbers. They're already online. So the whole communication channel has changed. I mean, like we were talking earlier today between Hartford and LaGuardia, that was a big market with an airline I work with. No flights today because people aren't going. Albany, Boston used to have 40,000 people. There's not an airplane in that market. That doesn't mean people are lined up at Albany International Airport pining away to get to Boston. It means they don't need to go there anymore. So where these things change is going to be very, very important. And, and a place like China, I mean, they, they've got problems way down the line to, to, to work out, as, as uh, the administrator just mentioned. But in, in the U.S., we've got to rethink how people communicate, and air travel is a very important part of it. We've got to rethink the infrastructure we need to do it.
2: I, going back to your question, though, I think that uh, it is important to recognize that governments typically view aviation as a strategic industry. It, uh, it is something that is very much intertwined with larger questions about uh, how the country develops economically and how the country you know, might rely on the industry for reasons of national defense. And China is no different. And I think that, uh, in fact, China, I think, has taken it even a step further. They view the development of their aerospace industry as really s- pivotal to their emergence as a global power. And so for that reason, they are providing a lot of support, not only in providing air services, but also in supporting aircraft manufacturing. And that also has, I think, very significant and far-reaching implications uh, for the global industry, where you essentially have two large manufacturers and uh, we can envision a future where uh, there might be more than two.
0: Well, yeah, I, I want to get at that question of what that means for competition for, for mm-hmm. a company like Boeing. We do have a question from Twitter asking, will Boeing recover from their 737 MAX crashes?
1: Absolutely. Oh, yeah, they're too big not to. You know, I mean, it, 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 they're too big to fail. No, they, they won't. I mean, this is just one part of it. It's a big part of their, pl- their uh, product line, but it's not the only one, and they will work it out. Um, it's going to take a lot of money but um, I, I, I really think they're still going to be dominant. Uh, Airbus will be dominant. Embraer is now part of Boeing, or will be. So, uh, and the other problem with China, just touching on that, is they're very good at a lot of things, but commercial aircraft, what they have on the, on the drawing board are Me Too mm. airplanes that aren't going to sell outside of China unless they give them away. So Boeing and Airbus don't really see a whole lot of, Aren't going to see a whole lot of competition from there or from Russia.
0: By, by Me Too airplanes, do you mean copycat? They're, they're, they're just not, they're,
1: they're, d- they're literally copycat mm-hmm. or they're just inferior products. Mm-hmm. The C 919 is an inferior product. I, I, I would agree with that
2: with a qualifier. And the qualifier I would put on it is that China is a significant market for aircraft. Mm. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, a- and going back to what I talked about before, of uh, you know the government wanting to support the industry and everything that we know about uh, the interplay between the Chinese government and the companies there, you know, uh, f- yes, Boeing and Airbus uh, definitely are the global leaders with respect to aircraft manufacturing. But if the significant growth is in a market that also seems to want to support its own manufacturing base of aircraft, that does, I think affect the competitive dynamic a little bit.
0: Let's stay on the Boeing Max for a sure. moment. Administrator Herto, w- what are the lessons learned from that? I know there's still investigations being done and analysis of sure. of uh, the interplay of technology, pilot training. What are the lessons that we can apply and, and questions we should be asking as we look at a boom in, as we talked about at the beginning of this segment, passenger use, a, a boom in places uh, sure. like Asia?
2: Yeah. Well, I think that, you know. first of all, it is important to recognize, I- as I said before, the public has very high expectations for aviation safety. And so when a tragic accident happens like what we saw earlier this year uh, with the Boeing 737 MAX, everyone wants to get to the answer. And uh, these are incredibly complex machines and systems, and the investigations are ongoing, and I know that everyone at the FAA, everyone across the whole industry, is very focused on what are the lessons that we will learn as a result of that. But I think you raise a really important point. There is the technology, and there is also the people. And the system is safe because you can ensure that the two of those work in tandem. Technology has, without question, resulted in tremendous increases in aviation safety uh, over many, many decades. But at the same time, the human factor is important. And so, um, you know, early on there was a lot of discussion about the technology. There have been other stories about were the pilots appropriately trained, and the investigations will sort all that out. The reality is, it's both. You have to have technology which will enable uh, a safe system, but at the same time, you have to have appropriate levels of training working in tandem with that technology and the two things working together are what's going to result in a safe system.
0: Michael, what lessons are you learning about the relationship between oversight and, and regulation, and? the producers of the product?
1: Well, I think what we we can take away from the max thing, and it hasn't been touched on much, is how much safer the United States is. Because you take a look at that Ethiopian crash, that co-pilot had 200 hours in type, 200 hours. Mm-hmm. You know, here we need 1,500 hours just to get hired. So there might be a pilot shortage in the United States, there's no safety shortage. And I think the strength of the US system and the US oversight is really coming into play here. We could criticize how the MAX might have been certificated, but I think that's more something that we're doing to improve the system that was already pretty damn good to start with.
2: One thing that I think it is important to point out, though, is since the mid-90s, the aviation system has relied on a collaborative approach to regulation. What that means is the regulators and the companies within the industry openly share data, and there's a high level of transparency between them. And uh, one of the things that I have found troubling in the debate is that uh, we need to establish a hard and bright line between the role of the regulator and the role of the companies. And I think that would be a terrible mistake. We had that before the early 1990s, uh, where there was a very adversarial relationship that existed between the regulator and the companies across the whole industry and uh, 1996 was one of the worst years ever in this country in aviation safety. If we had that rate of aviation incidents and accidents that we had in the mid-90s based on today's traffic, we would be looking at an incident or accident say every three weeks. We would never stand for that and I think the point that we don't wanna lose sight of is this collaborative approach has resulted in greater aviation safety. Yes, there are lessons to be learned from the MAX, but let's not throw out the whole regulatory model. Let's focus on what can we learn from this particular incident.
0: I want to get back to a question from Twitter. Uh, We talked earlier, uh, we heard in the last panel, the CEO of JetBlue, Robin Hayes, talk about climate change and flight shaming and how that's something that's becoming more and more prevalent in Europe, but it also could come over here to the US. So someone's asking on Twitter, is that having an effect uh, on, on, cl- on the climate change conversation when it comes to industry? And as we look at regional carriers, as we look at uh, a, a boom in desire to fly all around the, the world, Mike, you're, you're looking at me it's like you. Uh,
1: <laughs> can you. Can you say the word Luddite? I mean, <laughs> let's crawl back into a cave and not do anything. So flight shaming, I think, is really stupid. I mean, it's like, <laughs> wait a minute, we need to get around, we need to travel, so therefore how do we make it better? That's what Robin was talking about, how do we make it better? But to, to look at some of your neighbor, you're taking a trip to Dusseldorf, how could you do such a thing? That's nonsense.
0: Well, so what do you see as the productive outcome of this? Like, what, what how, do you, how do people channel their energy then, if you're well, not a fan of that, well, into well, actually making well, concrete change? Well,
1: what are things that are going to reduce emissions, number one? and telling your neighbor to stay at home is not going to do that. Well, what,
0: well, let me give you an argument though, yeah. what about, why not just use high-speed rail? Why are we talking about it a, a boom work. in regional aviation?
1: High-speed rail does not work. We can't build high-speed rail in this country. LA to San Francisco is going to stop at every whistle stop. And not only that, people, it's in markets where people won't use it anyway. High-speed rail is a dog for the United States. <laughs> okay.
0: So that's Mike's opinion. A- administrator, let's get your two cents on, on this. Uh,
2: climate is an important issue, and the industry is doing a lot, and I think needs to continue to do more. Um, I I talk is
0: that gonna come because consumers are demanding oh, it? Oh, consumers is it want be- it.
2: Consumers want mm-hmm. it. There, there is no question that consumers want to see a reduction in our nation's carbon footprint, generally. And so, uh, you know, the airlines, yes, have a powerful economic incentive to fly more fuel-efficient planes, Uh, but there is a lot of consumer support for things like cleaner fuels. Uh, There is a lot of consumer support for uh, things that can be done in the operation of the aircraft, electric ground vehicles um, at airports or reductions in uses of single-use plastic aboard aircraft, and so it is something that the whole industry is thinking a lot about, and it is something that our consumers expect of us, and we, we need to respond to it.
0: As, uh, before we go, as we look at a potential boom in regional market traffic around the world, what does the U.S. have to worry about?
1: I don't, I don't think, any, look, let's start with this. We have the best airport system in the world, the best airport system. So, as these things By change... By
0: system, you mean
1: we, uh, infrastructure,
0: infrastructure, do Infrastructure, Worland,
1: Wyoming, Akron, Canton, all these places, no, commu- no country in the world is as ready for the next generation of UAS and other things as the United States is. So we have that infrastructure. Can it be improved? Yes. The Port Authority is doing it here in New York. We're doing it in Salt Lake City. It's being improved, so we are moving ahead with the kind of infrastructure we need to improve air transportation where it's going to need need to be improved?
2: We need to I think increase the investment in infrastructure overall in order to support the growth of this industry, but also a different kind of infrastructure to support these new entrants, whether they be unmanned aircraft and others that are in the that are in the system. And I think that we need to figure out how we can accelerate Uh, the regulatory uh, framework in order to foster greater innovation, because at the end of the day, it's the innovation that is going to lead us to the next generation of a better aviation system.
0: All right. Well, that's all the time. We have Administrator Huerta and Michael Boyd. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. And now we'll hear from the sponsor of our program. No bloodshed. Thanks for listening.